Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good to see everyone. Good to see you all. Hi, it's good to be back. It's nice to know the church still exists. You know, it's... Um, I would always tell the elders, like, we really need to, like, work on the culture of our community that when I have my inevitable fall from grace, like, you're fine. I'm leaning towards embezzlement. <laughs> Jeff, where's Jeff? Um, just run me through what embezzlement is. That feels, that feels like on brand for me. I don't know. Uh, something worse than embezzlement? Like, if I stole your money. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I... I'd probably get to like Atlanta and then I'd run out of money. <laughs> well, but we're going to build a mega church first and then I'm going to embezzle. That's the goal. Not the way that I preach. Jeez, I still haven't used the Tesla coil yet. That's the secret. Um, it's good to be back. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name's Ryan. I'm pastor of this church. Uh, and I've been on sabbatical for the past five weeks. It's really great to be back. Um, it was wonderful. I'll talk more about it probably for the next seven years until I get another one. Uh, but it's really wonderful to worship with you today. Uh, last week, I was literally chanting psalms in Latin with Benedictine monks. So to be able to come here and to sing in English is kind of nice. Um, but yeah, it was great. And, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you everybody who contributed and, like, and helped uh, make that happen. And especially for those uh, who brought the good word. Can we hear a round of applause for them? Um, Jonathan, Nicole, Jenna, who's uh, not here right now, uh, Shav. Um, who's, uh, he would be preaching right now over at uh, Tribe, so um, it's awesome. All right, we're finishing up a series today called Wandering Home. Um, our larger kind of vision for this year is all our allegiance to King Jesus, uh, looking at this idea that faith isn't this kind of passive trust that many of us have been raised to, but it actually means this like full-bodied gathering up every piece of who we are behind Jesus as our King, our Messiah, our Lord, and allowing him to do this work in us. And so this series, we've been really looking at the first followers of Jesus and, and kind of following their trajectories because each one of them have something that we might resonate with in our own journey, that it's not a one-and-done thing. You don't just say a prayer and now you're a Christian and everything's good. And when we look at those first followers of Jesus, the ones that he called, they're always kind of stumbling around, and sometimes they get it, and sometimes they miss it. And for most of them, it wasn't until they encountered the resurrected Jesus that they, it really kind of came to light who he really is, and because of that, who they were really called to be. And so today, we're finishing out by looking at one of uh, my favorite people in Scripture, Thomas. I have a spot, soft spot for Thomas because my dad's middle name is Thomas, and he's the only one that got a middle name in our family. So, you know, it's always like Thomas comes with this, uh, you know, we would call him Doubting Thomas, right? It's like, oh, Doubting Thomas. Don't be like a Doubting Thomas. You're such a Doubting. And I always kind of resented that, again, because dad's middle name is Thomas, and he's great. Um, but I, I just like, I feel like there's more to this guy than what we see. And so um, as I've been kind of praying and meditating on the scriptures that we have that tell Thomas's story, this is what I really came to, that like Thomas, we care hard and we crash hard, which can lead to hardened hearts. But even in disappointment, Jesus invites us close. I think a lot of times 
the, those, uh, you know, like we've talked a lot about disappointment over the past year and a half, like through the pandemic, through the vitriolic political season that we've been, all this stuff and this kind of apocalypsing that's happening in the American church right now. And I always want to like say disappointment with a capital D. I don't think it's an emotion that we take seriously enough. And it's something that we just kind of tuck away, like, oh, this didn't happen or that didn't work or whatever. And we just tuck it away. But I think it's actually this profound existential crisis that many of us find ourselves in, and we don't know what to do with that. And so what I want us to do today as we're looking at the story of Thomas is to recognize that his, he is the patron saint of disappointment. And it's because Thomas cared. And you're going to find yourself in Thomas's story because you care. Because you have skin in the game. And life kind of matters to you. And you're taking a risk to be invested in Jesus, in one another, and you've been hurt by that. And that's okay, because when you bring that to Jesus, you're going to see what he does. Because what we've been talking about in this series is that there's really only one story. Orientation, where we kind of built up our understanding of God, ourselves, the world disorientation when some of those answers don't necessarily seem to work or kind of fit with what it is that we're experiencing in life. And then finally, if we're patient enough to be present in the midst of that disorienting season in life to find reorientation, that maybe we come back to things that have always been true, but we hold them in a new way, or maybe we begin to believe new, deeper, more beautiful things. But the other way of saying orientation, disorientation, and reorientation is life, death, and resurrection. There's only ever been one story. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to tell the story of Thomas. And so Heavenly Father, we uh, testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, that you are for us, you are not against us. And many of us, we do come in in this disorienting season of life. Maybe we're disoriented in trying to understand who you are, or who we are or how the world works, whatever it might be, Lord, we come in with these questions and these fears and these doubts. And, and even just like we were singing in a moment ago, like that doesn't phase you. That doesn't discount us from your presence. But instead, you beckon us in. You welcome us close. And so, Lord, even as we're pouring over your word today, would you begin to reveal to each of us what are those things that deep down inside that perhaps we're afraid to bring out into the open because we're afraid that you're going to shun us or push us away um, when, in fact, that's completely the opposite of what you want to do. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to begin looking at the story of Thomas in John chapter 11. This is a fascinating story. There's kind of three major passages that we're going to be looking at where Thomas actually contributes something to this. So, so he was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples that you know, Jesus went and kind of gathered together. These mostly young men, many of them were in you know, teenage years, kind of early 20s. And we don't know a lot about like, where Thomas comes from. His, his other name is Didymus, which means twin. So we think maybe Thomas was the, the twin brother of one of these other uh, disciples. We just, we don't really know, but we find these really interesting little vignettes into his story. So this begins in John chapter 11, uh, beginning in the first verse. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, 
this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now how many of you, you're like, there's, they're, they're like, you know, they're like, yeah, uh, Kaylee just loves Mary and Martha and Jesus, and so she heard that Mary was sick and just went, oh, wait. You know, see, it's just, this, that's weird. That's a weird part of the story. Like, Jesus loves these people, and so he hears one of them sick, and instead of just rushing in, he's like, all right, we'll just hang out for a couple of days and see how this turns out. I just think that's really funny. So then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Because the disciples, like many of us, still take things literally all the time, and you see this frequently with Jesus, and it's just like there's the constant perennial divine eye roll. That like, would you like elevate your thinking just a little bit? Uh, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus rolled his eyes and had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, as you do, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What? Like if I'm, if I'm, if I'm casting the movie, I'm, I'm getting Dolph Lundgren, like 80s, uh, you know, like action here. Do you guys remember Dolph Lundgren? He's like the B version of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like if you couldn't hire Schwarzenegger, you got Dolph Lundgren. So in this line, he would say like, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, like in that deep Dolph Lundgren voice. Like, Thomas, we, this is all we get from him. He's intense. He's real intense. Like, I get told sometimes that I'm intense, but this dude is intense. Because they're all freaking out. They're like, okay, if we go there, they don't like you in that village. Like, they're gonna, they already tried to stone you. Like, why do you want to go? And Thomas is the one who's like, let us go. We would die with him. And I just love that. I love that Thomas, he's, he's in. He's invested. He's like, wherever we're going, Jesus, whatever you're doing, I'm in. And I am so ready to die for this. And how many of us, we believe in something so much that we're willing to die for it? Like, that's amazing. That takes courage. That takes investment. That takes, like, opening your heart to actually care about the world around you to say, I am willing to die for this cause. And it's important that we bless that in Thomas's story if we're going to really understand his journey towards the resurrected Jesus. Because that is honorable and that is good and there's something there that we can learn. But even now we see that Thomas is missing that this isn't a death story. This is a resurrection story. Because this is what Jesus is speaking of. Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead as kind of, you know, a, 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 uh, almost like a prophetic living narrative of what's going to happen with Jesus and eventually what's going to happen to all of us because Jesus says this sickness will not end in death. He's merely asleep. And Jesus is saying that to all of you. He's like, this sickness that you have, it's not going to end in death. There's going to be resurrection. And Thomas gets like half the story. 
He's willing to die for Jesus. But I wonder if at this point yet, is he willing to allow himself to be resurrected? He's willing to claim death, but is he willing also to claim new life? And so this is what I I think is so profound, even in this little moment, that we're tempted to believe that the harshness of life is the real stuff. How many of us, that's how we've been conditioned, because the world sucks, and it hurts, and it's painful. And they're like, oh, the only real stuff is the nitty-gritty. How many of you, like, you really loved, like, emo and hardcore music in the early 20s? Like, yeah, right? And it's like, that was the the really real stuff that you're going to sing about is that stuff. Like, that's real, and there's eyeliner, and it's real, and pain. And then if there's any kind of, like, joy or goodness or happiness, we're like, ugh, that's so fleeting. That's so fake. You know what I mean? But Jesus invites us to live an abundant life. Jesus says to us, the life more abundant, which means that we bless the highs and the lows because all of it belongs. All of it belongs. Now, oftentimes what happens is when we hear Jesus say, a life more abundant, we think that means that we're going to win and we're just going to keep winning and we're always going to be crushing it. That's what we think abundance means. But we're not actually paying attention to the story when that's what we think it means. What Jesus means when he says a life more abundant, he says it's a life that matters. Because he says, you know, kind of echoing the Old Testament, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to turn it into a heart of flesh. Which sounds great until you understand that a heart of flesh is a heart that is capable of being hurt. Oh, really? It's like, yeah. Because guess what? You're going to, the lows are going to be a lot lower when you're a Christian. See, a lot of people don't tell you this. Like the pain of life is even more painful, but the highs are even more beautiful because everything matters so much more when we've been softened to the reality of the life around us. I think just as many of us are kind of addicted only to the highs and we only validate that as the real stuff and we do try to escape from pain and we try to ignore disappointment, I think many of us are actually addicted to those things and we negate the other half of life. How many of us, like Thomas, are only halfway there? We're willing to die. We're willing to accept the pain and the suffering of life. But we don't hold it in a way that we allow God to, to do something with it where it brings resurrection. We're all about denial and sacrifice, but we're afraid of a possibility of abundance. See, my therapist and I talk about this a lot, the difference between obligation and joy. And he said, you know, so often within the Christian household, we're afraid of living a reckless life, right? Going out and just doing what you want, being hedonistic and so on and so forth. But he said, it's just as tragic to God when you hide yourself away in a cave because you're just trying to meet all of these other expectations um, through obligation that it is to, re- to live a reckless life. Because that doesn't bring you any more joy than recklessness and hedonism do. That there's a way in which we're embracing life where it's, it's whole and it's full and it's abundant. And I think for many of you that have grown up Christian, it's because you've been taught to live by obligation, denial and sacrifice only. That has led you towards disappointment and unaddressed disappointment becomes bitterness. And that's why it hurts. And the temptation to close yourself off to the things of God, to close yourself off to the Christian faith, to try to go it alone because it's been a joyless experience. Christianity has only been about performance and obligation and just doing what's expected of you. 
And I wonder if that's kind of what's happening in Thomas's story. He's so willing to die and to do, quote unquote, the right thing, but he's missing the deeper thing that Jesus is going to be inviting him to down the road. And so we see this kind of coming back around in John chapter 14. Jesus is beginning to speak to them in in kind of more concrete terms about his death and resurrection. They're marching towards uh, the Passion, the Holy Week, uh, where Jesus is going to be arrested by the authorities and he's going to be crucified. And he keeps sharing with them, trying to give them vision for what it is that's about to happen because he wants them to come along with him. But they just, they can't think themselves into it. You know, and through this series, we've looked at how a lot of the disciples of Jesus, they kind of came in with their own agendas, like Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom of God and they all had expectations of how that's going to happen and what the results are. And it's when they don't see it go their way, it's the God doesn't go according to plan, that they begin to walk away or they begin to doubt that the whole thing was real. And I think Thomas was probably in that boat as well. And so we jump in in John 14, in chapter 1, Jesus is trying to reassure his disciples as he's talking them through what's about to happen. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I think there's a filter kind of over Thomas's ears. He's got this agenda. He's got this plan. He's like, this is, this is how this is supposed to turn out. He's probably already written the story in his mind, just as you and I have so often, as we've already said, well, this is the kind of life I have, and this is, I want the, this is my five-year plan, this is my 10-year plan. Even like following Jesus, it's got to look like this, and I'm going to get these things out of it, and then it doesn't quite happen. Because the invitation for Thomas was not to know the plan. You see, Thomas is just like you and I, just like we've talked so often about Israel in the Old Testament. They come to Yahweh and they're like, great, what's the plan? What's it going to look like? What are the dimensions? And God's like, I'm with you. And they're like, cool. So, okay, what's the plan? Like, what, what do we expect? Like, how do I need to prepare? What are the podcasts that I need to listen to in order to get ready to, like, think myself into this thing? And, and Yahweh's like, I'm with you. Like, until you understand that I'm with you, the promised land isn't the promised land. It's just another patch of dirt in the desert. I think Thomas is the same way. He's like, okay, I'm ready to die for you. Like, let, let's go. Let's like confront empire. So what's the plan? What do we need to do? How do I need to like prepare myself for this battle? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. It's not about having all these expectations and plans. It's about being in relationship with me. So the invitation for Thomas as it is for you and I is not to know the plan, but to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to trust wherever he leads us is good. Because he is truth embodied in a person. Now, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we grasp at at plans and um, programs and, like, things that try to, like, frame the future for us? And there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. It's the attitude by which we hold them because they think that's what's going to save us. Why do we do that? I think that we grasp at plans because we care. Because we recognize that we've only been gifted this one precious life, and we don't want to waste it. 
and we don't want to, to mess up. And we're so afraid of that. And so then when someone comes along and says, well, if you just do my weekend program, that's going to help you become the person that you're meant to be. It's really that simple, right? But as Jesus tells us, like, the road that, that you know, the, the road is narrow that leads to him because the, the wide road is filled with so many people trying to sell us products and plans and agendas and all this stuff that's supposed to help us on our journey. And it actually clouds our ability to know, oh, this is just about knowing Jesus. And so I think most disappointments in life come because we've latched our well-being to our plans and our agendas instead of relationship with God. One of my favorite quotes from Father Richard Rohr, he says, disappointments are premeditated, or expectations are premeditated disappointments. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have expectations. It means we grasp so tightly to what life is supposed to be or where we're supposed to go or what we're supposed to get out of God. And then when he doesn't deliver or she doesn't deliver, then we walk away because we've made it more about well, how we think things are supposed to go, than knowing Jesus and trusting wherever Jesus takes us, even though it isn't what we thought it was going to be, it's good because he is good. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, how many of us, our church experience is about running the program? It's just if I do this, if I do that, if I listen to enough podcasts, if I read the right books, if I go to this weekend conference or whatever it is, then I will find what I'm looking for. And it becomes more about us and, again, our performance and trying to live this obligatory life just to behave and be a little good Christian boy or good Christian girl. And then it doesn't work. And we were invested. We cared. We want, it's like that thing that doesn't get blessed in us that we wanted to be invested in our own lives gets mishandled. But what if church is really about us seeking the face of God together? And yeah, sometimes there are books that we can read that help us do that, of course. But we never lose sight of what we're actually here to do. And that brings us to the final moment that we see in the story of Thomas. So you're probably familiar with the last week of Jesus' life. Like he goes and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and then he kind of comes back from praying and he's surrounded by his disciples. Judas comes in with the authorities, with soldiers. They arrest him. He's taken, he's put on trial before uh, the religious elite. They condemn him for blasphemy and then uh, they, they, they beat him and they kind of tear apart his clothes and then they march him out of the city and they crucify him on a cross between two thieves. And all of the other disciples are just kind of like in a tizzy, like they don't understand this. Even though Jesus has been talking to them about it the whole time. We see uh, you know, Peter actively denying Jesus, like I'm not associated with him. You know, we don't know what has happened to the rest, all of them necessarily. We know Judas, uh, who was part of this series like the only difference between Peter and Judas is Peter stuck around long enough to be forgiven like that's it you know what I mean like they both had their plans and it was like oh it's supposed to look like this revolution looks like that like if we just do these things then Jesus is going to like overthrow the government and then we're going to be good and it didn't happen and we don't get necessarily what happens to Thomas during those couple of days, but the next time he jumps into the story, I think it's so imperative that we really get where he's at. It says in John 20, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Okay, So Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, uh, the resurrected Jesus. There's just kind of awe and wonder, like he walks through a door, which is really cool. And Thomas isn't there. Now I think that's really interesting, 
to ask the question, why wasn't Thomas with the rest of them on Easter Day? And I wonder if that's where we get this insight for, for who he is. That he's so disappointed. He's so, like, everything this week went wrong. Like, I don't want to be with my friends. I don't want to show up. Are you kidding me? Like, the whole thing fell apart. It didn't work. This wasn't what was supposed to happen. So at some other point, Thomas does eventually come around. And they're all so excited because they've met the resurrected Jesus. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now what do we see there? This isn't just this caricature we have of like, oh, Downey Thomas, don't be a Downey Thomas. If you just believe hard enough, if you just kind of ball up your fists and squint your eyes, just keep saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, it'll all work out. That's not what we're talking about. This is a guy that goes, I cared so much about that man. I cared so, I bought in. I believed the Sermon on the Mount. I believed in this whole thing of the kingdom of God and that the world was going to be turned upside down by this revolution. And then it didn't happen. He's like, don't ask me to just take your word for this. How many of you have ever been in that point? You're just like so angry that it didn't work out. And then someone's like, here's this thing. You're like, don't. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do this on rumors. I'm not going to accept rumors of something that happened. I need to experience it because I cared. I put skin in the game. This mattered to me. And I'm not going to take it secondhand. I think that's what we actually see in Thomas, that we bless in him the fact that he cared. And that so do we. So a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So Thomas had to sit for another whole week in that stewing frustration and disappointment before he was in the place to be able to meet the, the risen Jesus. And I think this is what's so fascinating. Here's what I want you to do. Close your eyes. I'm going to read you that second bit. And I want you to focus, like, what is the face of, of Jesus in your divine imagination? When you hear this story, what, how is Jesus looking at Thomas? Because it's very indicative of how you think Jesus looks at you, okay? Because you're Thomas. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was among them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How did Jesus look at you? Did Jesus wag his finger at you? Did Jesus look at you and go, 
If only you didn't doubt, you wouldn't be in this problem. Like if you had just believed harder when I said it the first time, that now I have to come down to have, you know, from, and show myself to you. And like, is Jesus sarcastic with you? Is he angry? Is he frustrated? Or does the Jesus that reveals himself to Thomas be the, is that the actual Jesus that reveals himself to you that looks at you and says, I bless you. I bless that thing in you that cared so much that you're not willing to go on rumors of what's happening with me. I bless your desire to know me, to follow me, to bring to me your doubt and your disappointment. Thomas was prepared to die. In some ways, I think Thomas probably was prepared for Jesus to to die, but he wasn't ready to receive him back. He cared so much. We should admire him for that. I don't think that what happens for many of us, what we're taught about old doubting Thomas, I don't think Jesus wags his finger at Thomas and says, ah, 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 if only you had believed a little bit harder. But Jesus looks Thomas in the eyes and says, no, 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 come here. Like literally, put your, put your doubts into me. Like I'm going to receive that into my body. And he looks him in the eye and says, you're blessed. You're blessed because you've seen. And that's, that's amazing. And the fantastic thing is, like as we're kind of you know, wrapping up the story of Thomas and the, the whole gospel of John, Thomas is the first person to look into the eyes of Jesus and say, that's God. That's what God is like. And the amazing thing about the Gospel of Thomas, you know, the other Gospels, it's kind of like this kind of surprise conclusion by the time you get to the end of the story of Jesus, go, oh my gosh, this is God. But John told us that at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he's kind of bringing it full loop through this character of Thomas, where Thomas looks up and, and comes to the conclusion that all of us have had this whole time to go, that's actually what God is like. A God who comes to us in our disappointment and our doubts and our fears and our frustrations and our bitterness and says, put your hand in my side. Like, feel the wounds in my hand. Isn't it amazing that the resurrected God, the God of new life, still carries wounds? Like, he still has wounds in him. We think resurrection means he's like kind of shiny, happy, new product, like, Jesus, it all worked out for him. No, the resurrected God still has like, he still has nail marks in his hands and his feet. He still has a hole in his side. That's the resurrected God. I think what's happening in our modern culture right now so often in the Christian household is that so many of us have this profound disappointment with the faith that we have inherited that we're actually trying to rewrite who Jesus was to make him a great spiritual teacher or to make him admirable or kind of blow him up into like, well, you know, he's our version of these other versions of other religions, and I don't think we're actually paying attention to the story when we begin to believe these lesser stories about Jesus because Thomas looks him in the eye and says, that's what God is like. That's our God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So Thomas was brought to awe by the tenderness of the resurrected and wounded healer. Does our reorientation to truth do the same for us? 
in everything that you're struggling with and all of the fears that you have from all the competing narratives in culture right now and all of the, the things that you grew up believing about God and yourself and those are being called into question and you're working through it and all of that, as you're being reoriented, do you have that same awe and wonder that Thomas has to look into the face of Jesus as he truly is and to go, yeah, that's God. That's what he's like. Because guess what, fam? Following Jesus is hard. <laughs> I don't know if anybody told you that yet. And it's full of disappointment and frustrations. But we have to give ourselves permission to care. We have to give ourselves permission to take that risk to invest ourselves in who Jesus is, in being a Christian, which means to be a little Christ. We're risking disappointment with tender hearts that believe. And not one of us gets to escape from failure and disappointment and frustration and bitterness because we've been called to live an abundant life. And an abundant life risks all of those things. But we also don't have to resort to staying in the place of bitterness. We don't have to, to stay in that moment to say the only real things in life is the pain and the suffering. Because we're only halfway there. We've kind of stopped with Thomas. Like we're willing to die, but we're afraid to risk the possibility of resurrection. And I think the beautiful invitation is that we get to open up our failure and our disappointment to the wounded healer, the resurrected God who carries the scars of crucifixion with us. And he welcomes us in. What if Thomas is actually the patron saint of our age of deconstruction? What if he's the story that we need to be listening to a little bit more? Because what we see in him is what we're all going through. And what if we have that kind of audacity to believe that when we bring our pain and our frustrations and our disappointments and being let down or things not working out or things not making sense to him and he welcomes us in that like Thomas, we might come to that same conclusion, my Lord and my God. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you uh, one minute just to kind of meditate on this question then you're going to turn to one another and we're going to spend a little bit of time in confession. And the question is, what questions and doubts can I bring before the wounded healer without fear of rejection? So often we're afraid to admit these things to God because we're afraid he's going to wag his finger in our face and tell us that we just need to believe harder. But you, when you came in, you were given um, uh, a little uh, clipboard and a half sheet of paper. And I'm just going to ask you just to spend some time in prayer. What are those things? What are the questions? What are the doubts? What are the fears, the frustrations, the bitterness that I might be carrying within us that I'm not resolving? Because I don't give myself permission to allow those things to be on the table. And then I'm going to ask you to pivot, and you're going to turn to one person. And you're going to share um, what those things are. And as you're receiving confession from somebody else, this is very important. You do not get to correct somebody. You don't get to make them feel better. You don't get to uh, offer them advice. <laughs> Please don't offer advice in confession. All you get to do is listen and to look into the eyes of the other person and through your presence to say, you're blessed. Yeah, you're blessed. Like all that stuff belongs. It all gets to be here. You're blessed. And so I'm going to pray, give you one minute just to kind of quietly uh, meditate through this question, and then I'm going to give you two minutes to turn uh, to your neighbor and discuss. 
So Lord, we, like Thomas, we, we carry with us this, these, this bitterness and these, these frustrations and these fears because we have had the courage to care, to, to have tender hearts, to open ourselves up to possibility in life, and yet still in that things haven't turned out the way that we thought they were going to. And Lord, we're sorry that, that it's so easy for us to kind of tuck those things away in the name of trying to live an abundant life or to put a good face on the faith instead of bringing those things to you and allowing you to call us blessed. So Holy Spirit, I pray in this moment, would you alight upon each of your dear ones here? Would you hold our tender hearts in your hands, your wounded hands? And would you show us the things deep down within us, these frustrations and fears, these doubts, these disappointments that we may be carrying that we need to offer to you? Come, Holy Spirit. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.